Seymour taps his fingers on the desk, having been brought in for questioning by the FBI about the events that happened a week ago. He had been waiting for an hour in this windowless room, left to stretch at the beard he hadn't gotten to shave in days and stare back at the room's security camera. He just shakes his head at first, but eventually gets impatient enough to ask, Are you ever going to send someone in, or can I just go already? Less than a minute later, a woman walks in, dressed in the standard black and white suit, holding a file in one hand and a recording device in another. She sits across from him and hits record on the device, going through the usual setup stuff as she opens the file. I am Agent Hunt, if you could please state your name for the record, please? Sylvester Seymour? Occupation? Technically unemployed? Technically? Well, would you call hunting monsters for what is essentially a countrywide vigilante group that only has enough money left to operate for another year employment? Hunt makes a face at that and marks some things down. What is your experience with hunting these monsters? I was hired by the DHEA. For the record, please state the full name of the agency. Seymour rolls his eyes as he starts over. I was hired by the Department of Homeland Environmental Acquisitions in 1988. I left in 1991, then joined the Crimson Ravens later that year. I've been with them ever since, so 31 years all told. Why did you leave the DHEA? Difference of morality. Meaning what? I learned that the DHEA takes their captured monsters, ships them to Area 51, and tortures them to learn their limits, weaknesses, strengths, all that jazz. Even the ones with the same kind of sapience as us. And the Crimson Ravens don't do that? The purpose of the Crimson Ravens is to hunt down things that are explicitly dangerous and prey on humans. We leave the ones that are just trying to live normal lives alone. Can you give examples of such peaceful creatures? Yes. There's a pause, Hunt raising her eyebrow. Will, you give examples? No. And why not? Because I'm not going to give the U.S. government sensitive information on immigrants, asylum seekers, and researchers without their consent. And if some of them are spies? I'll take that chance. You would place the United States in danger to protect them. As far as I can tell from recent events, the U.S. government is already doing a damn fine job of that as it is. Hunt narrows her eyes at Seymour. Morgan Reynolds was a dangerous terrorist who used a combination of magic and the very monsters you seek to protect to do what he did. And what about Agent Joseph Stevens? He knows he's hit a nerve because Hunt's lips go dangerously thin. How did you know about him? You think the Ravens don't talk to each other? Come on, Agent Hunt, you must be smarter than that. Agent Stevens went rogue. He used government resources without permission to- I probably know what he did better than you do, Agent Hunt. You're not going to be able to spin in on me. Hunt glares at him again, but moves on. How are the Crimson Ravens structured? It's a loose connection of cells, usually a couple per state, but the exact numbers vary since we try to prioritize busier parts of the country. I was the leader of the Maryland cells, though now I'm currently the leader of the entire operation. Now? You've had a change in leadership recently. Yes. And who was the leader before you? Edgar Allan Poe. Hunt just stares at Seymour for a bit. I'm asking a serious question, and I'm giving a serious answer. The Crimson Ravens were founded by Edgar Allan Poe about 180 years ago. He's been in charge ever since, both in life and in death, until Morgan Reynolds eliminated him. I took over after that. How many cells are there? Seymour shrugs. I don't know, 50 states, a few territories, at least two cells in each on average, so you're looking at about 100 or more. 
haven't exactly had time to get comfortable in my new role, much less memorize the personnel list. And how do you pay for all this underground monster hunting? While Poe was in charge, we had magical contracts that had wealthy benefactors donated to us in secret, possibly even from them. We also had a large flux of our money come from something called the Reynolds Foundation. All of this has disappeared. Like I said, we have about a year left in us at best. And what do you plan to do once that year's up? Seymour sighs. He's been thinking about this for a while, and after a few moments, he tells Hunt the only conclusion he's come to. I don't know. He's questioned like this for over an hour. Afterwards, he's let out, and he steps into the streets of Washington, D.C. Outside waiting for him is a woman with white hair, blue eyes, and dressed in clothes that would be considered old-fashioned but tasteful. Done? I think so. You? Yes. I haven't had that sort of interrogation since, well, since shortly before I became a cat. Seymour laughs, walking along with Dora. Ran into two of your guys. Ahab is nice. The mask is... Yes. He's the mask. She gives him a smile as they walk up 12th Street. Hungry? Yes, you? Yeah, please don't tell me you want IHOP, though. God, no, that place is terrible. Seymour smiles, pulling out his phone, looking for some food options. Have you gotten a chance to try Spanish food yet? I don't believe I have, no. Then I know a place that we can go this close. Seymour takes Dora to a restaurant called Estadio. There they smile and talk and get some food and drinks, and 45 minutes into their meal, Dora smiles at him. Sylvester? Yeah, Dora? Did you trick me into a date? Depends. On? If you'd like that sort of thing. Dora laughs a bit at that and smiles. No. No, I wouldn't. Oh. That is, I don't like being tricked. I do like it being asked, though. Seymour smiles at that. Dora, do you mind turning this into a date? Not at all, Sylvester. Not at all. Bose walks out of the Congressional Building, rubbing her temples. She had sat down in front of them for eight hours straight, answering questions that people desperately needed the answers to. But it was still an incredibly frustrating process. The good news is, it was official. She's the director of the DHEA. The bad news is, with the need for secrecy gone, and the knowledge that several of these anomalies were fully sapient and already integrated into society, the DHEA might not be around much longer. Oh, they didn't say as much, not outright. But the way the questions were being asked, the reactions to her answers, the looks she got, is the same runaround people who are on the verge of getting fired got. Questions with the hidden meaning of why do we need you when everything's out in the open now were still ringing in her ears. She needs a drink. She sits in her apartment in Bethesda, looking over the papers, files on her computer, the books she accumulated, everything she could think of. But it was clear. The DHEA as she knew it was gone. Congress had reamed her out for allowing it to fall to a body double in the employ of the worst domestic terrorist in United States history. Keeping all the monsters in one place for them to be released was a stupid move. All of it was a bad idea to be kept from the public. 
the uproar when she had to reveal Arius also kept a secret from the current president didn't help matters either. She thinks about it for days on end. The only way to save the DHEA was to restructure it, rebrand it. She would need help, though. Her head is too much into the old DHEA, before Morgan Reynolds ruined it for everyone, to come up with a good solution. So it was, for the second time that year, she picked up her phone and scrolled through her contacts, sighing as she called a number that she had hoped that she would never have to call again. Seymour grunts as his phone rings to the chorus to Elton John's The Bitch's Back, the phone buzzing on his nightstand for an added wake-up kick. He looks at the phone and sees that it's 1.42 in the morning. Doris stirs next to him and realizes that between the dinner, the fun after dinner, the post-fun after the fun, he hasn't slept for barely an hour. He answers it with a, Rhea, do you have any idea what time it is? Oh, I'm sorry, Seymour. I didn't realize I was interrupting your busy schedule of doing nothing and then taking a beauty nap. He gets up and grumbles as he walks into another room of the hotel room that they had taken for the night. Oh, be quiet. Listen, we're both in a bit of a tight spot right now. How much of my congressional hearing did you watch? Honestly, none. I was too busy talking shit over with the other raven cells to see what the hell we're going to do. Oh, good, for once we're on the same track. Basically, the DHEA is just a screwed. We need to restructure or everything is going to go sideways. Okay. What does this have to do with the Crimson Ravens again? The Crimson Ravens know more about the people of A-side and B-side than we do. You know the politics, you know the deals. We need that knowledge to help these people, or someone far, far worse is going to make the calls for us. Wait, are you saying we team up, Sylvester? The Crimson Ravens and the DHEA working together to create something more than the sum of their parts, keeping good, harmless anomalies safe while protecting the citizens from the dangerous ones that send over or escape. Seymour paces in the hotel room for a while, rubbing his face in thought. It would solve the money problems. It would keep people who were good at their jobs employed under him. But it would also mean giving up their freedom to the U.S. government. To Bose, who was so much like Arius in the worst possible ways. I need to think on it. You have 48 hours, starting at 8 a.m. Thank you, Rhea, for remembering what fucking time it is. Go to bed. God, you're impossible. Right back at you. Seymour hangs up and puts his phone on the table in the room so it won't wake him up again, and heads back for the bedroom. Dora is semi-awake, watching him crawl back underneath the covers. She cuddles him close and wraps an arm around him. Who was that? Rhea. Bose. Rhea Bose. She, um, she wants to help us. The director of the DHEA wants to help the Crimson Ravens? You knew she made director? You didn't? Seymour sighs. As he drifts back to sleep, he can't help but think that he's damned, no matter his decision. Bose flips her arms up into the air angrily. We can't let them have citizenship! They're people the same as you as me. They drink human blood, Sylvester! Seymour rubs the bridge of his nose in frustration. The last month has been one constant, unending fight with Bose. He'd agreed to the deal. He had to. A lot of Ravens didn't like it, but most of them understood. A few, like New York City cells, said they were splintering off, but as far as he could tell, most were on board, trusting Seymour to work things out with the new director. 
He hadn't been this miserable around Bo since the divorce. They don't have to drink blood directly from the source. Oh, my Baltimore cell ran into a vampire working at a hospital who made do with donation bags. So he stole donated blood. Yes, so he wouldn't have to drink from actual humans, Rhea. Rhea stands up and starts pacing. Something Seymour remembers that she did when she was especially frustrated. Seymour, I'm trying to be patient here, but you aren't working with me. Vampires simply can't just be allowed to drink blood whenever they want. You? Be patient with me? Aside from agreeing to not call living people anomalies anymore, you barely let me have an inch. Because you have unreasonable expectations! You called me to get me a DHEA that the US government would see as relevant in today's world. I'm giving it to you, and you keep rejecting every idea. This is supposed to be collaboration. We're supposed to be making compromises, but so far, all you've agreed to... You would stop calling people a fancy government were for freaks. You want to guess how quickly your department will get absorbed into the FBI if you go back to Congress and tell them that's all you got done? Because I'd bet every dollar I have that you could count the hours on your fingers and toes. Bose breathes heavily in anger, then closes her eyes and takes a few deep, relaxing breaths. I suppose I am being a bit unreasonable. I'm sorry. This takes Seymour by surprise. Bose never admits when she's wrong or apologizes. Made part of what's her, her. Shit, Rhea. This must be important to you. Yeah. Yeah, it is. Alright. Okay. Let's get to work, then. From that point on, things get a bit better. Smoother. Neither of them are happy with what was agreed on, but someone once said that a good compromise left everyone unhappy. It was no longer called the Department of Homeland Environmental Acquisitions, but rather the Department of Human and Extradimensional Associations. Anything undead or Feywild related would fall under their jurisdiction. They do, after all, have the most training and experience with said beings. They assumed Congress would want some other government agency to be oversight for them a bit, which they would be fine with as long as the DHEA gets to continue to exist. Area 51's detention center would be gotten rid of. Bose wanted to keep it, but Seymour convinced her that getting rid of it would show face citizens that they weren't the same DHEA anymore. What he didn't tell her is that he didn't want another instance of a super wizard and a doppelganger being able to release them all. Mages would be hired again. Mostly because a lot of Crimson Ravens were mages, but Seymour also brought up that having mages on staff would help suss out any weird activity going on on the inside. Like Domination, for example. Bose reluctantly agrees, but also tells Seymour there would have to be some kind of registration. She agrees with Graham that some sort of identification and standardized way of teaching it was needed. Seymour didn't see the registration going so well. Bose tells him to stuff it. Say people who wish to live on U.S. soil would have to take a citizenship test, like any other immigrant. Seymour isn't happy about this one, arguing that some of these immigrants have been alive and around longer than there has been in the United States, but Bose puts their foot down. He suspects that it's an easy way to document Faye so that the DHEA can keep an eye on them, but he doesn't say anything about it. Undead are to be eliminated outright. That was something that actually didn't have to be argued too much. Most undead were escapees anyway, eliminating them sent them back to the Deadlands where they belonged. One exception is made to ghosts and other undead beings who never crossed over to begin with, like Poe, so long as they aren't actively malicious. The Crimson Ravens would be integrated into DHEA and lose the Crimson part of their name. Most of the members already shorten it to Ravens to begin with, and Bose thinks the name sounds silly with the Crimson part in front of it. 
They'll be used as a police force for Fey and Undead, leaving the harder-hitting stuff to the rest of the DHEA. Seymour would be in charge of the Ravens. However, his partner on the other side of things... No, 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 abso-fucking-lutely not. Like it or not, Sylvester, he's the best field agent I have, but also the reason why you, Amber, Jorgen, and Cooper had the Hawthorne tech that, quite frankly, unconvinces the only reason you're all still alive. Wade Graham is the head of special weapons and reactive magic. You're calling our SWAT equivalent Swarm? Is the name really your biggest complaint? Does it really matter? No. Then let's just move on. Much like they had suspected, the new DHEA would have to get oversight from another branch of the government for a few years, but otherwise their proposal was approved after a lot of debate. Shortly afterward, FBI agent Amy Hunt was assigned as the leader of the committee that would oversee the new DHEA and report on it if it was operating within the boundaries set by Congress. The Mage Registration Act also passed, making it so that not registering to be a mage would have similar consequences for not registering to have a gun, but actual registration was a disaster. Both figured the number of registered mages would be low, but not as low as they turned out to be. Only time will tell if this new DHEA will find its place in the new world. A week after the battle for Baltimore, Cleon stands at the site where the cleanup crew is trying to move the severed dragon head, watching. It's going very poorly. The thing is the size of a small building, part of the neck fell into the water, and it's unnaturally heavy for its size. Not to mention no materials they could reasonably get could cut through the scales. So here it is, this big red landmark nestled neatly between the Baltimore World Trade Center and the Baltimore National Aquarium. She had to admit, the thing looked badass. Talia walks up next to her, looking at it, making a face. Ugh, I hope they get rid of this thing soon, it's awful. I'm just waiting for it to go up for sale. I'm buying the fucking thing as soon as it's out. Wish this fucking incompetent lot would hurry it up. Talia decides, looking at Cleon. Anyway, you told me to let you know when Dorian is back. She's waiting for you at your place. Thanks. So fucking hard to get good help these days, but you do good work. I take my duties very seriously, your majesty. Cleon makes a face at that. No. What? I'm not your queen. Not fucking yet. I don't want to get all high and goddamn mighty sniffing my own farts with that shit until I'm on my damn throne. Then... What do I call you? Just fucking call me Cleon, for fuck's sake! Before Talia can reply, Cleon heads to her car, looking at the dragon head one last time. She gets driven home and heads up to her apartment, where she opens the door to see Dorian looking out the window. Cleon gives him her a warm smile, the only one who can make her smile warmly these days, and moves over to her fiancé, rubbing her arms. God, I missed you. I missed you too, Cleon. How's your family? They still don't approve of me marrying you, but aside from that, good. Be honest, how much were they hoping that I bid it during that whole thing? Let's just say the disappointment was visible on my dad's face when he saw you giving an interview the next day. Cleon chuckles, then moves in to kiss her when there's a knock at the door. For fuck's sake! She gives Dorian an apologetic look. She tries not to swear too much around her, but it's hard to turn her filter on that quickly. She turns around and answers the door. What? A woman in black and white traditional suit getup stands there, holding a badge. I'm Agent Amy Hunt of the FBI. Are you Cleon Moirin? Cleon looks furious, then looks back at Dorian, who looks worried. Don't worry, Miss Moirin. This isn't about some of your more... questionable methods of obtaining income. And what the fuck is it about? 
Agent Hunt pulls out her phone, pulling up a video clean during the battle for Baltimore, deforming her armor. This, Miss Moireen? Can this wait a fucking goddamn night? This won't take long, Miss Moireen. We just wish to know your role in the battle. If it was significant, I can convince my superiors to look the other way about some of your other avenues that we're exploring about you. Why the fuck would you want to do... A favor. You want a fucking favor. Agent Hunt gives a small smile. Well, Miss Moirene? Leon thinks about it for a bit, then looks at her. Those fucking magic-trapping satellite-towered things. Blew the fuck up. Technically, the dragon head in the bay is my doing. Hunt looks visibly impressed. She nods at Cleon and puts her phone away. I'll be in talks with my superiors to stop investigating the seven-leaf clover, and you can expect me to be around when I need something. How fucking soon? Not very. I tend to sit on these things for a while until I really need them, Miss Moireen. Enjoy your evening. Agent Hunt walks away and Cleon slams the door, cursing under her breath. She hates owing people favors much preferring to be on the other side of those deals. Dorian comes up to her and wraps her arms around her from behind. Honey, don't worry about it. Dory, I just gave the FBI agent the very big leg up. I can't... Clean? Not tonight. Don't worry about it tonight. She's not going to be doing anything tonight. Tonight is for us. Clean sighs in defeat, taking one of Dorian's hands and kissing the back of it. Right. For us. I could try to finish that painting of you. You know you always get distracted. Because you can't keep yourself restrained for 20 minutes. They share a laugh, Cleon untangling herself from Dorian's arms and turning around, wrapping her own arms around her fiancé's waist. I want the baby. Dorian blinks in surprise at that. You... What? I want the baby. With you? I... When did this happen? About a week ago, when a dragon poked his head out of the portal in the sky, told myself if I got out of it alive, I was going to have a baby with you. Clean, your life, I'll try to teach them that my life... That my life isn't a thing to be emulated. At least not this one. And when I become queen, I'll teach them my own beliefs. That the crown should serve its people, and not the other way around. Dorian nods and smiles. Should we get married first? Ah, nobody's gonna give two shits either way. They share another laugh at that. The painting is attempted, but as always, it stays unfinished. Gawain sits at the round table, staring at a picture of Cleon intently. He served a lot of royalty over the years, including her ancestor, and some were just as bad as she was, if not worse. Still, something about her gets under his skin. Maybe it was because she was the first one to successfully divide the round table. For the first time since their creation hundreds of years ago, the coins were not all under one monarch. Maybe it was because of what Cooper had told him, that she plans on essentially eliminating Parliament. She says it's temporary, but when is a despot ever willingly given up power? Merlin walks in, looking over at him. I know you're not a wizard, but if you stare at that thing any longer, you'll burn a hole through it with your eyes. You should have never told her. I tell all the firstborns their status. Not my fault she's the only one who not only believed me, but actually wants the throne. I know you promised Arthur you would, but you should have known... Should have known what? That it would eventually lead to one of the descendants wanting to take the throne. 
course I did. Elizabeth Windsor is technically not supposed to be on the throne. She's a good queen. Gawain, we can't stop Cleon. She's technically in charge of the coins. The minute we try to stop her, she takes it away from you. I just... I agree with Blake. We can't trust her. The fact you have trusted any of our monarchs after Arthur kind of shows that even though you're 1500 years old, you're still a little naive, Gawain. Gawain hustled that, crossing his arms. So this is it, then? We just sit back and wait for her to take over in a bloody coup? Uh, I don't know about that. She's smart. The coup might not be so bloody. I'm being serious, Merlin. So am I. I don't think she's as bloodthirsty as you think she is. So you do trust her? Never said that. I just said that her ascension might be bloodless, that's all. Gawain sighs, looking at the older man. I need a vacation. You and me both. Can we both take one at the same time? Merlin gives a soft smile. I think we can leave Rufus in charge of this lot for a week or two. He's a good boy. Don't let him hear you say that. And with a snap of his fingers, Gawain and Merlin disappear. Two hours later, they're spotted sitting on a beach in Aruba, enjoying the sun. The Sultans, all nine of them, gather in the throne room. Looking at each other with a nod, Arthur sits up. A pair of skeletons walk alongside Poe's ghost, escorting him into the throne room. Edgar Allan Poe, you stand accused of leaving the borders of the Deadland once entering, possession of an Earth citizen, and using your power to influence the mortal realm. How do you plead? Poe looks around at the nine figures looming above him, and decided to not lie to nine of the most powerful figures in this, or any, dimension. Guilty, your eminencies. Arthur leans back as George Washington sits up. You do not deny any of the charges. No, Sultan Washington. You are aware of the punishments of such actions. Yes, Sultan Washington. Washington leans back as Cleopatra sits up. Then you will be pleased to learn, Edgar Allan Poe, that you are not to face any of those punishments. Pope blinks at that, Cleopatra smiling as she leans back, Montezuma sitting up. Your actions led to the safety of countless souls. My sultans, I do so beg your pardons, but I thought the dead... We do not look forward to such large influences of souls, Edgar Allan Poe. It makes containing the troublesome ones far more of a hassle than normal. He leans back as Osmond sits up. Furthermore, while the one known as Morgan Reynolds only intended to start the area he stated, it is our belief that he would have spread his influence even further. Osmond leans back while Catherine the Great sits up. How's our reward for saving the area known as the East Coast, Edgar Allan Poe? And in acknowledgement of the hundreds of years of service you have given protecting the living world, we have unanimously requested that you be escorted to Elysium. He leans back as Jinmu Tenmo sits up. Of course, you are free to reject this offer. Poe blinks, looking around, unable to process the request. 
Aiza? Two figures enter the throne room, nod to Poe, and escort him out. The Deadland Sultans, now number ten. Graham sighs as he overlooks the cleanup of Salem. The rebuilding has been going smooth enough, though a handful of historical buildings were destroyed. What was slow going, however, was the extraction and destruction of the arms of the thing that came over from the Deadlands. The Hazard crew had decided that it was best to tackle the issue one arm at a time, and considering they didn't even have an accurate count of how many there were yet, it was going to take a while. Also, the meeting with the scientist was irritating, though it went much better than when he went to Colorado to collect Williams and Waters for questioning. He was so impressed with the smoothness of how Waters broke his nose that he didn't even bother trying to bring them back by force. Still, though, Graham moves along Salem Street silently, taking it all in, wondering how the DHEA ignored it for so long. Clearly a lot of weird shit happened here. Every time he asked Arius about it, Arius just insisted it was Salem trying to drive up the weird factor in order to bring in more tourists, but knowing what he knows now, Graham couldn't help but think that Hathaway had a plane in as well, maybe using her magic to keep Salem quiet and calm to the outside eyes. He'll have to ask her about it later. Still, it wasn't a complete loss. While slow, at least the cleanup was making steady progress, unlike the cleanup in the inner Baltimore Harbor. They were still having trouble getting reliable material capable of cutting through the dragon scales. Most of the damage caused to Salem is water-based anyway, and that's simple enough to fix. Oh, and the town isn't indebted to a mob boss who barely takes steps to hide the fact that she's a mob boss. That was also a big help. He admit Miss Moirene briefly after the battle for Baltimore. He had to admit, she did something to him that not a lot of humans can do. Make him feel fear. He's been with the DHEA since 2010. He's fought monsters in hand-to-hand -hand combat before. Hell, he once flipped a goat man onto its back using nothing but its own muscles and its own momentum. But Clean Moirene was a different beast altogether. A combination of earned arrogance and an aura of absolute confidence. When she enters a room, she makes sure you know that she's the most important one there. You would better to listen to her. He has government backing. He has years of experience fighting things that are three times her size on a regular basis. But he has the feelings that none of that mattered to her, and if he makes one wrong step, he'd go missing and nobody would even think pointing fingers at her way. How the hell do you fight someone like that? The answer that he comes to is that you don't, not without a lot of backup. He hopes he never has to speak to her ever again. He's on his way to the car when he sees it, two boys looming over a smaller figure. He keeps watching and it turned out to be a goblin, cowering in fear of them. Graham moves over to the boys to hear what was being said. Come on, fairy, show us what you're made of! <laughs> yeah, not so tough now that you're out in the open, are ya? Leave her alone. The two turn around to see Graham in all his five foot nothing, wearing nothing but a suit and tie. The two just left, on either side of him. <laughs> or what, nose rep? You'll have to deal with me. Ooh, scary. Bull swings a punch, but Graham catches it, then twists it nearly to its breaking point, but is careful not to do so since Bull looks like he might be still going to high school. Bull screams in pain regardless. 
Though the screams cut short as Graham flips him onto his back, still being careful not to cause lasting damage. Skulk thought it might be distracted enough to leap on him, but Graham simply used the momentum of Skulk's foot to lap him onto his back and bring his knee down to the young man's chest and pin him. Apologize. What? Graham grabs her wrist and starts twisting hard enough that Skulk screams out in pain, though nothing cracks or snaps. Apologize to the girl. Skulk looks over at the goblin, who clearly doesn't know what to make of the situation. I'm sorry, I'm fucking sorry, okay, I'm sorry. Get your friend and get lost before I have you detained. He moves his knee and lets Skulk up. He collects Bull and then runs off. Graham adjusts his suit and moves over to the goblin, bending down to get on her level. It's okay, you're safe now. The goblin slowly moves towards Graham, who holds out a hand to shake. I'm late. The goblin shakes his hand and replies cautiously, Samantha. Earthling, I was born here. My parents came over about 250 years ago. And they gave me an earthling to better blend in. Samantha nods. Do you know those two? No, not really. I see them around a bunch, but I don't know them personally. Well, if you see them again, stay away, alright? I feel like there's going to be a... A rough transition period. She nods again. Do you want an escort to go where you're going? No, I think I can get there by myself. Thank you, Mr. Wade. She runs off and Graham watches until she's out of view, then sighs. It's the first time he's had to deal with interspecies bigotry under this new DHEA. He has a feeling it's going to be far from the last. Tabitha steps out of the Port Authority and looks around in awe. It's her first time going to New York City, and much like anyone who hasn't been to a city like this, it's a bit overwhelming. Oh sure, Baltimore was a city. A pretty damn big one, too. But New York, New York is a whole other beast altogether. Where Baltimore felt dangerous, hateful, and oppressive, New York feels comfortable. A city at ease with itself. It has its own share of problems, for sure. But for a single city with a bigger population than all of Maryland put together, she felt oddly at peace. As she walks through the city streets where tons of people are trying to push her into going on bus tours to buy their mixtapes, food vendors shouting to buy their kebabs, it feels chaotic, disjointed even, but it all works. It all feels like it belongs, and through the chaos you can see a weird order to the place. She can see how someone could fall in love with a city like this. While she was here on business to help Cooper with his side project, she also came here days early so that she could explore Manhattan. It was her first time here, after all, and seeing a place in person is way different from seeing it in the movies and on TV. For one thing, what the movies failed to get across is the smell. The subway smelled like piss, hard stop. It just smelled like a public bathroom, even outside the public bathrooms. She got used to it fairly quickly, but the subway was warm, humid, and smelled heavily of urine, which was probably strengthened by the warmth and humidity. The trains themselves were fine, but once you stepped off of them, the smell would hit you all over again. Street level wasn't nearly as bad, the only time she could really smell anything other than the normal smells that hundreds of thousands of cars pour out was when she got close to the subway entrances, which also smelled of piss, and when she was near the Hudson. The Hudson smell made her miss the subway smell. 
Still, she has other things to do than to smell the place. The first thing she does is hit Fifth Avenue, because two of her stops are there. First stop is Trump Tower, which she gleefully flipped off. She even got a local to take a picture of her doing it with her phone. She sent a picture to Scab before slipping her phone back into her pocket and heading to the Empire State Building. She bought the express pass to the top, not fooling around with the stupid long lines for the normal elevators. She had stuff she wanted to do. She found the view breathtaking. She could see the entire city. Not just Manhattan, the entire city. She could see a lot of Jersey City, too, and she found the whole thing amazing. Next up was Times Square. She didn't see what the fuss was about on this one. A few cool looking buildings, sure, but other than that there wasn't really anything worth noting. A lot of people just passing by, a lot of stores selling overpriced touristy crap she couldn't care less about. Overall, just not impressive. She hit Rockefeller after that, and despite it just being a mall, essentially, she found it to be a really nice mall with some pretty unique stores. She stopped off the, the Nintendo store there and got a mirror Kirby plush for the next time she saw Scab. She didn't know when that would be, but she figured he would like it. With that, her feet officially hurt, so she caved and bought a ticket for a bus tour. It took her all over Lower Manhattan, and she got to learn quite a bit about it. While on the bus, she was surprised to see that there were Faye walking around without their glamours on. She figured it would happen eventually, but it hasn't even been that long. Barely anyone paid attention to them, though. There were weirder things than elves. Some of them were even dancing in the middle of the street. The next day, she goes off to the Statue of Liberty, Central Park, and Washington Square Park. It's at that last one she hears a man standing in the middle of it preaching. She goes over to it and it turns out that the man was actually an orc. And he was taken from us, our lord, our king. He was going to cleanse this world in righteous fire, and it was you who took it from us. Shame on you! Shame of all of humanity! The word of Morgan Reynolds will not die! It will not be silenced! He was going to kill 16 million people! Yes, to liberate the entire world that has been suppressed for thousands of years! By you! By everyone here! He was the rightful king of all three realms, and cowards silenced him, just as you seek to silence me, woman! Don't you fucking call me a coward! I thought of an ogre who was going to eat a child! A CHILD! Because your precious Morgan Reynolds told him he could! At that, the crowd starts turning ugly. The orc, noticing that people were starting to get tired of his song and dance, combined with Tabitha standing up to him, steps down and goes off. Likely to spout the same nonsense somewhere where Tabitha wasn't. I put a damper on her whole day. The next day was business day. She had a job to do and the knowledge to do it with. She only hoped that everything would go according to plan. It was a bit... risky. Her first instinct is to check Times Square, and her instincts pay off. Even in New York, he stands out in the crowd. Kinda had to in order to do what he does. Her intel said that the first thing she would notice about him would be the vest, but they were wrong. It was the neon blue side shave. She stands there and watches him do his thing. He's good at it. He twirls the spray paint cans with a practice flourish, making big productions over certain motions that she is sure are harder than he's making them seem. And while she comes in halfway through the newest piece, he was done within minutes. He uses a lighter to set some compressed air on fire to dry out the painting, rolls it up, rubber bands it, and takes the money from the tourist as he hands it off. He looks right at her and smiles. Cute girl want a souvenir? Pick two colors. Not what she was expecting to hear from him. She was taken a bit aback. 
green and blue? Good choices. You got to work spraying it down with white base first. So, where are you from? Baltimore. Hoofa doofa, my condolences. <laughs> Messed up what happened there. Yeah, well, you would know, right? He gives her a curious look as he kept working. You Grant Harrison? His usual speed slows way down, but he keeps working, professional street artist that he is. Who's asking? Someone who wants to learn a thing or two. You try YouTube? Cute, Mr. Harrison, but I don't think they'd teach what you know on the internet. At least not on any sites I would have access to. Grant finishes the rest of his painting, rolling it up and giving it to her as she pays. Meet me back here, 7 o'clock. If you're a minute late, you missed your opportunity, Miss... Tabitha Snyder. 7 o'clock, Tabitha. She nods and wanders off, spending the rest of the day doing her tourism shtick. She doesn't wander too far away from Times Square, not trusting her ability to get back on time, and if Grant was serious about her being a minute late, she didn't want to risk it. Luckily, there were some things that she could do around there that she missed her first time around. Even though 7pm was hours away, New York City was an amazing place to kill time. She shows up 15 minutes early. He shows up 15 minutes late. Ah, damn it, you're still here. Yeah, I am. Grant sighs and gestures for her to follow. She does, and they head into the subway and end up in Greenwich. They actually walk right past Stonewall, heading down a random set of stairs to a basement door next to it. He opens it up and steps to the side to let her in first. After you! I'd rather you walk in first. Okay, if I did that, you literally wouldn't be able to get it. She raises an eyebrow at that, but walks inside to what appeared to be one of the tiniest bars she's ever seen. However, even to her untrained eye, she could tell nearly everything here is radiating some sort of background magic. Grant walks in after her. Welcome to the wizard bar! Let me guess, enchantment that keeps non-magically inclined people out without an escort? Smart girl. Thanks. Grant grabs a seat at the table, Tabitha moving over to sit across from him. So, what's this all about? Mr. Harrison, I... Grant holds up a hand to politely interrupt her. Mr. Harrison's my dad. Please, just call me Grant. Alright, Grant, I need to learn magic. And you couldn't do that in Baltimore? There are wizards there. None that have done what you have. If you're talking about LA, I am. That was nearly a decade ago. And yet people in magic circles still talk about it, Grant. Grant sighs, ordering foods and drink for himself. Tabitha sticks to water. You do know I'm kind of a shitty wizard, right? I know you like to sell yourself short. No, I mean it. I'm not that great at the magic stuff compared to other wizards. And that's why I sought you out. You think outside the box. Remind me to tell you the story about the Night Quill Caprice on Gushers if I agree to take you in. Anyway, that's the kind of teacher I want. One who uses magic as one of many tools at their disposal rather than a catch-all. Grant stands with her for a long while, and when the food comes, he asks... Are you with the DHEA? Technically. Then give me one good reason why I should help you instead of telling you to get your ass back to Baltimore empty-handed. Because for one, I'm still in the Ravens part of it. Ah yes, the sellouts. Aren't you a Raven? Nope. Quit after the merger. Didn't register either. You aren't worried I won't sell you out to the DHEA if you don't take me? You're not stupid, Tabitha. I can tell. You know about me, so you probably know who some of my friends are. Still haven't heard a reason why I should just leave you high and dry, though. 
this isn't for Raven's business. Grant listens to her closely after that. I'm doing it so that way I can help a friend do something beyond the Ravens. Is this something going to hurt people? No. Promise me, right here, that you aren't lying to me. Is this a magic thing? Did you see me cast a spell? No, but the place we're in doesn't work like that. Tabitha looks at him closely, but he can tell that he isn't lying to her. I promise. If I teach you, are you going to register? Tabitha shakes her head. Grant leads back, taking a deep breath. After a solid minute of silence and a bit of eating, he finally says something. Look Duolingo on your phone. Cantonese. I... What? I was taught magic by a man of Chinese descent who was taught in Cantonese. Therefore, I was taught in Cantonese. Some of the concepts don't translate well to English, so I'm going to need you to learn Cantonese so I can teach you these concepts. Is this a sort of test? What? No, it's... Oh, god damn it, Sifu Ho. Huh? Nothing, just realizing something 17 years after the fact. Grant writes a number down on a napkin. And if you feel confident that you can carry out a conversation in Cantonese, call me. If you can follow along, I'll tell you to come back up here. If not, you keep working on it and try again later. Tabitha smiles and nods, programming Grant's number into her phone, sending him a text, and excusing herself. The next day, she spends the entire bus ride home doing exactly what Grant told her to do. She would need to if what she and Cooper had cooking up was to be done. Tabitha Snyder, wizard, has a nice ring to it, she thought. The Winter Court is strangely quiet this day. None of the usual fun is being had. The people instead gathered around an altar to pay their respects and leave gifts. Queen Wynren gives a sad smile and thanks those that come to do. Prince Lycar does not smile. He is dressed in the darkest blues he owns. When people pay their respects to him it is all that he can do to not break down and cry. So he stays silent, just nodding at everyone. After the service, he sits in his room, staring out the window. There's a courteous knock at the door before Reinrin enters anyway, moving to stand next to him. Do not blame them, my child. You know it had to be done. Lycar doesn't respond, Reinrin putting a hand on his shoulder. He would have brought death and destruction to countless inhabitants of Britain. He was still my son. Wynwen frowns, looking out the window as well. There's an exceptionally long silence this time. Did you know? No. Not until the very end. Then we have a defense when the wizards of Britain claim we have broken one of the few laws they have placed upon us. Lycar nods. There's another long silence. She knows what he's going to say before he does, but she gives him time to find the words regardless. You know I must seek justice on those who did this, mother. Of course, Lycar. It is our way.
She squeezes his shoulder lovingly before walking away. He keeps staring out his window to his quarter of infinity, taking it in. He briefly thinks of starting a war with the Summer Court, but the thought brings him no joy, so he holds it off. He will find those who murdered his son. He will bring justice for Morgan Reynolds.